Logos and Trivical podcast. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logos and Trivical. You might also be Logos and Trivical. While you're trying to parse that out, let me introduce today's special guest. I have with me today, John Daly. And this is a man who uh, I came across, frankly, because he's the father of my good friend, Garrett Daly, who you might be familiar with on Twitter, Libero Rex. And he, uh, he came highly recommended by Garrett and a number of mutual friends that Garrett and I share because um, he's, had a, he's had a long career in military service and in government service. And um, because he's Garrett's father and Garrett's such a thoughtful person, I thought it would be a great opportunity to, to reach out to somebody a little closer to my sphere and pick his brain on the life of a the life of a soldier, the life of a person in the military, and try to humanize this subject of war that we're covering in this series. Um, and so with that very vague and mystifying introduction, welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks for being here. And why don't you let the people know a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Great. Uh, uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, you know, it's, it's an honor. Like I said, Garrett's a, uh, uh, I know a big fan and, and I'm, uh, am as well and I'm honored to be on. Um, so a little bit about myself. I, I joined the, you know, grew up in, in rural Virginia, West Virginia, kind of border region, and uh, the, didn't have a lot of, of options when I graduated in high school, uh, neither the, the intellect or the, the cash to go to college. And there wasn't a whole lot you know, happening in, in Hedgesville, West Virginia for me. So I joined the Marine Corps right out of within a couple of weeks of graduating high school and really never looked back. Um, you know, I, I think there's a perception that a lot of people you know, join the military strictly out of a, a sense of patriotism or a sense of, uh, you know, wanting to do something uh, for their country. And that's, I think, certainly part of it. You know, but for me, it was really just adventure. You know, I wanted to get out, see the world. I wanted to do things that, uh, I otherwise wouldn't would be able to do, and I totally found that you know in the Marine Corps. So joined at uh, seventeen, you know, loved it. I retired at uh, thirty nine after little, almost twenty two years uh, in, and had a had a great time you know, throughout. Um, the interesting kind of interesting part about my service at the time that I was in was that, you know, I came in at the, at the tail end of the, you know, the Vietnam crew, uh, you know, still had a lot of, of folks with Vietnam experience and the, obviously the, for a lot of the kind of the bad taste that that left in their mouth. Um, but really went through a, a, obviously a peacetime period and seemed to kind of seem to skip all of the opportunities for, you know, missed all of the, the little things that went on. So just you know, missed out on, on Panama, you know, in the, in the late, uh, late eighties, um, the Gulf war, I was, uh, working at, uh, American embassies, uh, at that time. So I missed out on the Gulf war and then, uh, very, um, almost found myself in Somalia in 92, I guess. And then, then it pan out. So I, really thought that I was going to go through a career without, uh, you know, seeing the elephant as, as the, they say. Um, but, uh, you know, I progressed 
made my way into source reconnaissance, which is the, at the time the Marine Corps Special Operations Organization. Um, kind of worked my way through the ranks there, and in September of 2001, was deployed with the, the Marine Expeditionary Unit doing a, a routine training mission in Darwin, Australia, and we had a, finally after a you know, week of, of working with the Australians, had a night off. So we were sitting in a pub watching watching soccer, drinking beer. And uh, you know, due to the time change, that's when we saw the, you know, the planes hit the, the World Trade Center, and we I think we all knew then that, that nothing was going to be the same. Um, so very shortly after that, we found ourselves in Afghanistan in the beginning of the of the GWAT, and uh, you know, following that uh, deployment, there was a, a recognition by the uh, Secretary of Defense that there was a need for more special operations forces. So the Marine Corps was directed to stand up a special operations unit, and I was selected to uh, serve as a team leader for that organization, um, deployed to Iraq. And upon return, the Marine Corps, again, was required to grow that special operations unit. So I found myself working at the, the school that was responsible for, for training uh, special operations Marines and I retired in 2008, and uh, I kept a job there, so that's still where I work. So that's uh, a lifetime there in, in two and a half minutes, I guess. Yeah, and uh, obviously there's a lot to, a lot more to dive into there. Um, just, I wasn't necessarily expecting to ask about this, but it's piqued my curiosity. Uh, what, what kind of... Uh, what did your time at the embassies look like? What did that entail? That was was really a great uh, duty, although I wasn't. Uh, I kind of got lied to um, about what what it entailed. I was a, a young guy looking for, like I said, looking for more adventure than I was getting. I had just had the opportunity to go to the Marine Corps Sniper School, and uh, uh, graduated from that came back and I was, uh, I kind of got, kind of sold a, a bill of goods. I was told that as a sniper, you know, working at embassies, I would likely be able to use that that skill. Um, not the case at all. So the, the Marines that work at embassies are, are guards. I mean, we're the, the guys standing in the dress uniform to greet you when you, when you walk in and you know, maintain security uh, within the embassy. So I didn't get to do what I what I thought I was going to do, but it was a phenomenal experience. I spent a year in the American Embassy in Budapest, Hungary, and that, that happened to be in 1989, right as the, uh, the wall was coming down in Berlin, and the, the wall actually, the, the border fence between Hungary and uh, Austria was cut. The Soviets were, were leaving, so it was a really great time to be there. And then after that year, I went to Buenos Aires for uh, about a year and a half. So I'm curious, um, sort of being right in the thick of things during that uh, sort of transition period between S Soviet uh, hegemony in the area and then watching that fall apart, I, I wonder um, how that informed your understanding of how the world works. Because so often people, especially, you know, I was born in 85, so uh, that was happening when I was a little kid and, and I grew up sort of 
with the propaganda stories about it and everything. And as I've gotten older, it's been a subject of interest, but I just wonder how being right there and seeing it happen and seeing the people around you who were profoundly impacted by uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, the, the taking down of the wall, what did that, I mean, did that, was that something that you used sort of to, to frame your perspective on, on geopolitics and how the world works? And, and, and if so, how? I would, I would love to say it was, um, but uh, I was a you know, 20-year-old kid, really, myself. Uh, and we were still very, very, uh, well, we were still very restricted as, as brains on, on where we could go and what we could do, because um, it was still a, a pretty heavy you know, Soviet uh, intelligence presence in uh, mm. the area, and we were still very heavily restricted in See, and that makes that makes sense. I mean, at, at twenty years of age, I was uh, far less far less interested in uh, all the sort of historical significance of the things going on around me. I, I mean, nine eleven happened when I was, I, th I think, eighteen, uh, something like this. Let's see, no, sixteen. Um, so by the time I got to my early twenties, you know, I was sort of jaded about the whole, the whole situation in the middle East and had, had learned enough to know that I, I didn't know enough to really understand what was really going on because there's a lot of, a lot more to it, but I guess I'll sort of dodge around that because I want to get, I want to get back into, to your life and your experiences here. So, so one thing I'm curious about is as you I mean, you're in Australia and, and you see the planes hit the towers and you said that you knew that things were not going to be the same. And this is a refrain I've heard from just about everybody who's ever talked about that. Uh, but for somebody who's active military, obviously never going to be the same is quite a bit different than somebody who isn't. And I wonder, moving from maybe thinking you were never going to be in active combat to to realizing I'm, I'm going to go into active combat soon. I wonder sort of how that perspective shift, how did you handle that? And how did the people around you handle that? What was, what was running through your head and, and how did people prepare for that in their different ways? Yeah, great question. Um, it was, I mean, surreal. We were honestly a little bit uh, drunk at that point. So we uh, recognized that uh, it was Madhouse, uh, you know, and you know, throughout the it's a small downtown in Darwin, 
it was kind of a mixture, I would say, kind of universally among, you know, anticipation that we were going to go get, going to be the first guys to get payback. Um, I know a lot of anger, obviously a lot of uh, concern for the uh, folks at home. I think more so. Uh, one of the things I've said repeatedly is that the whole thing seemed very, very surreal, and it, it still does to me every, every year. Uh, I don't think it, it weighs on on me nearly as much as it, you know, for, on my wife or on people who were really experienced it back here. So we were in a, largely a medium blackout. You know, you're limited anyway on what uh, what you have access to, particularly back in, in 2001. So for the most part, I think uh, phones on the, the ship to shore phones that they, they have were shut off. Uh, email as it was, uh, but that was was uh, curtailed kind of at a at a web based on operation security requirements. So it was uh, you know we had kind of immediately my guys anyway. I had uh, said it was the platoon sergeant which traditionally are a little bit older guys, a little better trained than, than a lot of uh, the other other folks. But uh, yeah, we really immediately went into preparation on you know, what do we what do we need to do for combat in, uh, in Afghanistan. So we think that's where we were heading. So we started, you know, our vehicles were, were green, so we started you know, getting out spray paint paintbrushes painting our vehicles, uh, trying to you know, camouflage all of the equipment that we had. It was racing equipment. You know, just started to just make sure everybody you know, knew how to you know, deal with, manage all of the larger machine guns, cruiser weapons. Um, just kind of refining, you know, skills and, and uh, trying to you know, imagine how we were going to be employed and how that would uh, impact us. So there so, wasn't a lot of time for reflection, I guess. That's, um, you know, surreal is sort of the way that I look at that too. I remember that morning I was, I was playing a sort of a fantasy stock trading game with my dad on Yahoo Finance. And so I was waking up early to watch the markets open and I was watching, I don't know, at MSNBC business or something, you know, and uh, suddenly beneath the stock ticker or above the stock ticker came on this video and uh, the announcers came on. It looks like there's a plane that's hit the towers and my dad and I just kind of look at each other. That's really weird. Why would a, why would a plane be, what? like why would that have happened was there something wrong with the plane and then just that little bit later the second plane hit and it's the same sort of experience that just about everybody has described we knew instantly it's like there's no way that was an accident there's not two planes hitting a tower by accident that's not that's not how things work Uh, but you know me being in high school and living in Utah, I was very much removed and we still didn't have all the details. And it sort of just felt like a dream to me, uh, until, you know, later I started seeing some of the guys I knew seniors in high school, um, enlisting and getting ready to, to go. And then you, you know, 
you, you see people you knew and then they leave and they're going to war and you never thought that was a possibility when I was a kid. It's like, that's, you know, we're done with the wars. And so I guess my next, my next question to you is, you mentioned how it was surreal and then you were drunk and then you're on the ship and you woke up and you're at sea and you started getting ready. And that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a weird experience, I'm sure. But obviously once you get into the theater and then you start doing combat missions, um, I imagine there's a point at which that dreamlike feeling snaps into a very concrete reality. And I wonder uh, sort of without getting into too many details sort of what did that look like for you that sort of oh shit moment when you wake up and realize this is not this is not a this is not a dream this is not some sort of theory based idea of combat I'm, I'm actually here and I'm doing things how did how did you sort of what was that like for you and then what was it like after you realized that that was going to be a part of your life for the next however long The odd thing about it was that it really did not seem terribly real, um, just because I had, like I said, I had kind of been on the periphery or been close so many times, and even the, the Gulf War was a, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of, of real combat that took place. Um, so I, we, the first mission that we, well, not first mission, I guess, but uh, one of the first missions that we were sent on when we got into Afghanistan was to, uh, my platoon did a, a couple hundred mile movement through the desert to find a route for the for the remainder of the, the assault force uh, to move up to Kandahar. And uh, we, kind of did that, you know, on kind of pins and needles, you know, it was a couple of days, us, I think we had you know, maybe four vehicles driving through the desert, um, kind of picking our way through, finding a route and, you know, kind of on, on edge, on, you know, nerves on edge, expecting, you know, that we're going to hit a, hit a landmine or hit, uh, you know, get ambushed. And kind of after that doesn't happen for, you know, the first day or two, you, and you don't see anything for the first day or two. And it's a big desert. You know, there wasn't uh, bad guys crawling behind every rock like you, you kind of imagine. Um, so kind of start to think that, hey, this is just going to be a normal, uh, you know, a normal sort of mission. We're going we're gonna to go out and, and not see anything. Nothing's going to happen. But uh, I think it was December 7th of 2001, we got sent out to uh, observe a roadway that was leading out of Kandahar. And uh, if anybody came down the road to stop them, and if they were bad guys, obviously, to to deal with them. And we were setting, kind of joking, uh, that you know, nobody was going to come, or if they did, it would be a, you know, a busload of, of uh, orphans, you know, trying to get out of, uh, get out of town. And we finally got word from the, the, the aircraft that were flying overhead that uh, there were a couple of vehicles headed our way. Um, it was, again, it was surreal, I think, is the, the word that, uh, the only word we could use the, to 
two of the vehicles pulled off into the desert and the, the third, the lead vehicle, the pickup truck was, was kind of like scouting ahead. So it uh, came up, you know, blew past our position and uh, we had strung, strung concertina wire across the, the road, which wrapped itself around the axles of a vehicle and, and stop it in pretty short order. Um, and the, you know, the vehicle stopped, you know, ran through the wire stopped. We drove up onto the road behind it and could see that the, the guys in the back of the truck were, you know, right had rifles in their hands and uh, intended to use them. So that was really my first experience, you know, jumping out of the vehicle and uh, trying to yell at these guys and, and very limited Afghani to put their weapons down and they didn't comply with that request. So we, we engaged them, got into a little uh, gunfight, but even two minutes before that gunfight, we were kind of you know, joking, laughing about, uh, you know, how nothing was, was going to happen. So that, uh, it took, it took that really, I think to, to, uh, change that mindset that I had developed that I was just never going to, you know, experience combat. So once you, once, once that did happen, um, how did, how, how did things, I mean, what was your experience of the world? How did that shift it or how did it change it going from, uh, this, this is never going to happen to this has just happened and is probably going to continue happening. I mean, did it, I'm wondering how it sort of affected you on a human basis as, as John Daly, not necessarily just as a soldier, but just as how you looked at the world from that point moving forward. Uh, certainly you know, differently than it did some of the guys who were with me. And the big difference was at that point, like I said, I was the, the platoon sergeant for these guys. So I had 30, you know, Marines that uh, kind of relied on me to make you know, sound decisions and, and take care of them. So that, that weighs incredibly heavily uh, on you more so than, than uh, I would have thought. But uh, the, I think the most, the fascinating thing to me about uh, that moment or the, the moments right after that moment was that so much like, became very, very clear to me. Um, you know, when you know, people were shooting at me and I was you know, shooting back at them, that uh, things I kind of heard about or read about, um, you know, the, the experience of, of, of being you know, pure, you know, operate kind of on pure adrenaline, pure, uh, uh, action, you know, and not reaction, uh, you know, operating, you know, subconsciously things, uh, that you would practice over and over and over and over. So I was, I was so you know, fascinated by it that after the, uh, you know, the next morning, you know, we sat down and I, you know, went through and kind of interviewed my guys. I'm like, Hey, tell me, you know, what did you experience? Did you, you know, for you, did time slow down? Uh, and for me, it did. It felt like, uh, like I was moving at, at lightning speed and, and everything else was going, you know, progressing very, very slowly. So I had more than ample time to, to make decisions about, you know, what I needed to do next. Um, I noticed that, uh, like my peripheral vision kind of went away you know, noises, um, like the thing that, uh, 
really struck me most and most immediately was that, you know, without earplugs in fire and a, a, a rifle, the, the noise was nowhere near as loud as it should have been. So a lot of physiological things that I noticed that, uh, you know, I, like I said, I talked and a lot of my guys had some of the same experiences or some had completely different experiences. So I really became fascinated with that kind of study of, of what is it that happens and, and not necessarily combat situations, but I think that's probably the best example of it. But in incredibly high stress or near death, uh, sort of situations and that, uh, experience more than anything, I think shaped the way I looked at, uh, you know, preparing myself and training other people for, for combat, you know, thereafter. Okay. And so that's an interesting, um, that's an interesting uh, note there that because you were in a leadership position, it affected you differently than uh, it might have uh, someone under your leadership or under somebody else's leadership. And I guess I'm curious um, in that regard, when you, when you look at the world now and you're, you're you know, you were involved with the, with training and, and working at the school. And um, so I guess when you look at how that sort of shaped you in the moment, and then you took your experiences back with you to, to teach other guys based upon those experiences, what are some of the takeaways um, that you, without getting anywhere, uh, you know, sensitive, but just sort of in principle, what are some of the things that some of the leadership principles that you learned that you now employ to help uh, keep other guys more prepared, more safe, more ready for what's to come. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of them. I think they really probably apply, um, you know, certainly not just to combat, but, but kind of across the board, I think uh, narrowing down what it is that you're trying to achieve when you, uh, you know, when you set out to, to prepare yourself, what, what is it that you're, you're, trying to prepare yourself for and you can't prepare for everything right but you can uh, look at the what's the most likely you know threat what's the most likely scenario that i'm going to find myself in and prepare myself really really well for that you know it's you're better to be a uh, you know a mile deep than an inch than an inch wide um you know, it's important to uh you know, recognize what you can master and, and master something before necessarily you know, moving on to a lot of other things. Um, one of the biggest things, particularly with combat, I believe, is is explaining to people the the things that are likely to happen to them. I think there's, uh, you know, like I talked about uh, slow motion time or fast motion time. That's a, a a recognized phenomenon that happens, uh, but it can be, you know, if misconstrued or misunderstood in the moment by somebody who has never experienced it before, or has never been taught that they, they might experience something like that before, it can kind of throw them for a loop. So having a, you know, what I first tried to do was take the, take the lessons that I learned, 
and then just explain to you guys, hey, if you've never been in a in a gunfight or an incredibly stressful situation, these are some things that you might experience, some things you might expect, and here's how you can you know, bounce back from them, or how you can use them to your uh, you know advantage. Okay. So, okay, we, you sort of, you, you get in, you have some embassy experience, opens your eyes to the world, lets you travel. Um, 9-11 happens, you enter the theater, um, and then you come back and start imparting some of these lessons to um, guys who are getting ready to deploy or redeploy. And... Over the course of um, time, you know, obviously, here's here's what I'm trying to get at. You talked about when you got in, there were still Vietnam guys around, um, and they had their sense of of what it meant to be in the military. They had their combat experience. They had their feelings about it. And then there was a big lull where there were still minor operations, but there wasn't some sort of um, mega operation that required trillions of dollars and and thousands of guys to, to work with. And so there's that sort of dearth of, of knowledge and, and you bridge the gap, but you know, you heard the stories and you talked to the men and then they retired and you were still there. And then you went into combat. And I guess what I'm curious about is, is how much of that knowledge do you feel like was preserved and how much of it became more relevant to you once you'd had some combat experience and, and how has that translated into sort of improving the education process and relying on more and more experience to refine these things over time? And um, how much room do you suppose, and obviously this is sort of a, a tough question to answer, but how much room do you suppose there is for um, further refining, I guess, not just the, the life of a soldier, but then the strategic decisions and things that, are, that come into play uh, to fight these kinds of wars. And the reason I ask that is because there's a lot of thinking around the idea that um, perhaps we, as the United States and as a Western nation and as a sort of more traditional or conventional war fighting uh, entity are maybe um, sort of have a blind spot towards this durable disorder or this uh, sort of non-conventional warfare or this uh, these different forms of war that we seem to be fighting and, and maybe are struggling to mobilize a strong answer to because of our sort of um, attempts to, to fight this war like it might be World War II, even though it isn't. Uh, great question, long question. But I think if I go back to the beginning of it, I, I think I don't know if it was what the Vietnam guys just talked about the most, or it was what I took the most from it. But really, what I took from them was were very strictly tactical lessons, and it may be because I was a young guy, and that's what I was I was concerned with. But uh, the the takeaways, you know, from them were were very, very much on you know, like techniques and procedures, you know, how to move through the jungle, how to watch out for punji pits, how to, uh, uh, you know, pack you know, your, your equipment to, to get by with you know, as little as possible and how to move 
know, quietly at night and watch out for booby traps and things of that nature. Um, I think what, uh, you know, all of which are beneficial if you find yourself in the jungle, but are you know, extremely unbeneficial if you're in the desert because, uh, you know, some of the principles obviously still apply, but, but the specifics do not. But I think what, uh, what we've had to discover and had to had the need to try to pass on more or more, more good, uh, you know, eternal you know, principles of, of, you know, how to best prepare yourself, how to best make decisions under the conditions and uh, stresses of combat. I think more than anything now is the, the recognition that, uh, you know, there are, you know, I, I was, uh, in, in those days, my younger days, I was a, a PTSD denier. I didn't think it existed. I thought it was, uh, it was something that people said to get out of, you know, going, going back to, to combat or to get, uh, you know, some sort of VA disability. Um, I've obviously, you know, come to recognize that, uh, you know, that's not the case. There are people that, uh, whose experiences leave them uh, different. I think everyone's experiences leave them different. And I, for a long time, didn't recognize that in myself, that I, I don't, uh, I think I've been fortunate and that I don't think that I'm, uh, I don't think damage is the right word, but uh, it's the word, I'll, the only one I can think of is the one I'll use. But I've certainly different know than I was before and that's not necessarily a bad thing um, but I think you know, just like the the physiological effects of things that happen when people start shooting at you it's important to recognize that that you are going to be a different person um, and you know, you're gonna have to, to deal with that you know your loved ones will have to deal with that so I think one of the the biggest you know, uh, progressions that we're making now is, is one, making sure that you know, Marine soldiers, sailors, airmen understand kind of the stresses of combat and how those can impact them, and then how to, you know, providing them with, with resources and, and capabilities to address those things when they return so they can, you know, go back to being a productive member of society. I think that was at least part of the question. I think towards the, I don't know that I would uh, agree that uh, we're we're necessarily doing a bad job of of fighting in a regular warfare environment. Um, it's an incredibly challenging environment, and I think that. Uh, You really have to adjust your, your expectations. You, you can't uh, treat it like it's World War II and say, "Hey, we're going to," you know, when we cross this this line or seize this piece of ground or this this village, then we, you know, we've we've done this um, in, a, in a kind of an asymmetric warfare environment that we're in. It's just a completely different beast. And you know, by you know, cut off one head as a uh, beast, you know, several more spring up and, and different forms of warfare, cyber, all these things are evolving that uh, make it a very, uh, you know, challenging problem set. Sure. So I guess um, 
my question then is, do you suppose then, because part of, part of the idea behind a war, say like world war two or, or something like this is that when you're done, the war is over and then that's that. And maybe there's some aftermath with politics or economics or things that are going to have to be dealt with. And maybe there's some unresolved tension, but, um, we beat you, you lost to us and, and that's how it is. But it, that, like you said, you can't just say clear a city and then call it good. There's a lot more to it. There's, and especially in that region, there's, there's religion and, and long-standing feuds and, and all kinds of regional stuff and all kinds of influences, proxy actors and stuff. So I guess my question is, do you suppose that the way we should be looking at the world and, and the wars that we fight is sort of um, trying to manage the level of warfare that we are engaged in, but that it's going to be a constant rather than saying, um, you know, we're done now and we won't have another war for however long. Do you suppose it's just going to be perpetual war? I, I'd like to think not. Um, but I mean, there's also, you, you can't necessarily open a can of worms and, and you just walk away. Um, so there's, but I, I, I do think at a, at a certain point we have to recognize that, uh, you know, that we likely do not have the, the will uh, to, or you know, the capability to see, you know, things through to their conclusion. And I think we have to recognize, you know, when it's time to step back and leave well enough alone. Um, that's obviously doesn't fall into my, my lane to decide, but, uh, I think we, we do not. And, and have yet, uh, not even come close to recognizing the impacts that, you know, 20 years of war is, uh, is kind of left, you know, on the folks that have been fighting it. Um, and I think we, we need to do a better job of considering those impacts and, you know, before we you know, commit ourselves on other, other fronts and then you know, do a better job of, of, uh, using the other, uh, strategies that we had, diplomatic, um, you know, economic. So, so on that point, um, you know, here you are, you're John Daly, and, and you're, a lot of your do a better job is um, preparing the guys who are going to go fight these wars to be able to do so efficiently and according to the rules that we've set or adhere to and to survive and, and to come back and be prepared to, or to go and, and be as prepared as they can to understand the ramifications of what they're doing both on themselves and then uh, in the effort. And I guess my question to you is, what do you think the average Joe, you know, here I'm Chance and I'm not, I'm not a warfighter. I haven't been in the military, uh, but I have a vote and I have a voice. I have people around me who are veterans. And, and what do you suppose that the general populace could be doing to, to do a better job of supporting the people who are fighting the wars and maybe to do a better job of opening up lanes of communication to, to give voice to, um, cause you said we might not have the will to continue to do this forever. So how do we as people sort of 
open up a better dialogue around this because so much of it is vitriol or, or jaded or cynical conversations. I guess I just wonder how you think we could, as citizens, do a better job of both supporting our our veterans and then um, maybe making our voices more influential in, in guiding the direction of these conflicts. Ah, great question. Um, let's see. I, I think that uh, supporting the troops often gets conflated with you know, supporting the war, supporting anything associated uh, with the war or a uh, you know, fetishizing, fetish, fetishizing or uh, you know, putting you know, the troops on a pedestal and uh, not you know, holding them accountable for, for wrongdoing. Um, you know, we've seen a number of, of kind of instances lately where uh, people are you know, kind of gotten off the hook or, well, you know, uh, it's, we don't really care if, uh, you know, if you violated the law of war because you are, uh, you know, an American and, and you should be able to do what the hell you want. You're protecting our country. I don't buy, you know, that for a second. And I think it's probably more uh, blatantly obvious to me a, from obviously having spent the bulk of my adult life in the military, but also I live you know, right outside of Marine Corps base. Um, so we've, we've developed what I, you know, kind of call this or other, I, didn't, I don't think I made the term, but the bro vet cultures that we've, um, you know, the highest highlight of one's life, you know, the, the fact that you served in the military is an incredibly, you know, an honorable, uh, a good thing. And, and you always look back on that with pride, but, uh, I don't think the, you know, the goal is that that should be the, the defining uh, or the only defining moment of your life. Um, and I think the American public sometimes encourages that by, uh, like I said, fetishizing the, you know, combat or, or, uh, you know, putting those that have, that have served their country up on you know, too high of a pedestal, if that makes sense. I don't even know if that really answers the question. <laughs> uh, it, it leads me to another question, which which maybe will clarify some stuff. So um, if we're not to sort of fetishize the, the combat experience and we're not to um, put the a soldier's time in the military on too high of a pedestal, then and how, how should we approach it? How should we, um, as citizens, um, talk to or treat or uh, approach our veterans while main, making sure that we acknowledge the, the service and the, and the different sort of difficulties that can come along with it without um, getting weird about it or, or without <laughs> treating it inappropriately? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's, um, I think the military is, is uh, or not, not the military necessarily, but kind of veteran, the veterans organizations are, you know, largely if there's somebody to blame. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, you know, thanking somebody for their, their service is you know, a nice thing to do. It's, it should be taken, you know, by the service members uh, as a, an honorable thing. Um you know, there have recently been a, a couple of articles where you know, service members have uh, complained, you know, bitched and moaned that, you know, I don't want people thanking me for my service. Um, you know, I, I think it's important for those of us who serve to recognize that we did so as, 
you know, as citizens of this nation and as servants of the people, not as, uh, you know, we're not a, you know, we're not uh, the Spartans, right? We're not a, a warrior class. We're not samurai. We are, uh, you know, American citizens that volunteered and, you know, everybody, at least in, in recent memory, has volunteered to, to serve their country. And, um, you know, contrary to what, uh, you know, a lot of the belief is, you're paid relatively well for it uh, and compensated relatively well. And the benefits that come with it, uh, you know, educational benefits, you know, medical uh, benefits are generally pretty good. There are certainly you know, things that would be better, uh, you know, the certainly issues with uh, Veterans Administration and things of that nature. But, but by and large, um, you know, you're, you're pretty well taken care of as a, as a member of the military. So I just... Uh, I think that there's become a perception within members of the military that they're owed, you know, something for the remainder of their lives. And I don't think that that was an expectation, you know, coming out of World War II. You know, you came came home, you had a parade, and then you went, to, you know, you got a job and you and you worked, you know, that job for the next four years. I think, uh, but we're also in a Kind of unknown territory, like I said, we haven't had you know folks who've been you know where we haven't had a nation in combat for for twenty years. So there's a a big a big difference, and there were in a lot of cases uh, just in uncharted waters on how to deal with uh, or react to or or you know, best honor, respect, or help those that uh, fought. Okay, so, you know, we kind of covered um, a bit of your life and experience and, and got into maybe some more fundamental principles and, and talking about the military in general. And, and my takeaway from this conversation, um, or at least a large part of it, has been that, um, and this is something that I find often, but it's that our soldiers are just people and, and they've done something extraordinary um but at the end of the day they come home and then they have to be people with other people again and that um while they are due or maybe we should be stepping up to give um, a certain measure of respect uh, that we don't need to like you said fetishize it or or take it to an extreme level but that um maybe we need to do a good job of of walking them home and saying thank you and offering respect and, and then uh, sort of letting them get on with their lives and stop making or defining their lives by the, the years they've spent in the military so that they can find some sort of uh, meaning or, or fulfillment in, in the life that they went to fight to defend, I suppose. Um, is, is there any, cause I, I think it's, it's a good time to probably start wrapping up the conversation. So are there any, are there any points, are there any uh, ideas or, or anything like that that you feel like we missed or that you want to express before, while we still have a little time to do that? Um, no, I think you did a kind of a good job of, of capturing it there. I don't want to uh, you know, give the opinion that I'm um, 
trying to uh, let's see, make lighter or not give uh, you know, the people that the folks that go and, and fight our wars their due. But I, I do think that uh, in most cases, you know, those that need assistance, we should certainly get it to them. But uh, I believe that, you know, in a lot of cases, we'd be better off by just getting them back to, uh, you know, getting them a job, getting them, getting them back to work, letting them continue to be productive members of society, and hopefully, you know, you know, find, you know, move on to bigger, better things. Um, use the you know, educational resources that they they have, the GI Bill, to uh, you know, learn something new, start a new life. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's also tough, I think, to you know, in, in a lot of cases for, you know, at the end of World War II, you know, the war was over for everybody, right? Um, you know, and that's really been the case with, with every war that we fought. We, uh, you know, once the war is over, everybody gets out uh, or a large portion of the folks get out of the military and, and go on about their life. You know, now we've, we've had, you know, we're at the point now where folks are uh, able to retire after 20 years of service nearly. Uh, next year, you know, they'll be able to um, and have spent an entire, you know, career in the military, 20 years in the military at a, at a nation at war, which is, like I said, it's just a very different, you know, paradigm than we've we've seen before. So, um, you know, it is, you know, there certainly is a, a difference to the, you know, the veterans now, I believe, because they're, you know, they kind of continue to watch and in many cases probably feel uh, you know, to a certain degree that they've the question they're, they're getting out, you know, they, they, have they done enough? Are they leaving uh, their you know, brothers and sisters to continue to fight now that they're, they're out. But uh, so it's a tough, like I said, it's kind of one of the wicked problems now. How do we, how do we best uh, take care of the, of the people that have, have uh, you know, been done their country's bidding, you know, for a period of time without, uh, you know, turning them into a, uh, or I should say, just with do that and still then allow them to get back to their their lives and you know, be productive U.S. citizens. I guess, um, yeah, absolutely. And and maybe my um, my final question here, and it's sort of a tack on to that. But after this conversation, uh, what do you hope people will take away with them? from, from listening to this conversation and sharing in your experiences and your, and your wisdom, what's, what are one or two points that you would uh, hope that people would take away from, from what you've shared today? I think one, and I, I didn't really say this, but I, I, I think that there, you know, quite often is a perception that, uh, you know, everything, you know, war is a, a terrible and horrible thing. And that's for, um, and there are plenty of terrible, horrible things about it, but it's also, uh, you know, for me, it was, it was one of the, uh, certainly a defining moment of my life, but it was, uh, there was so much, um, I believe I'm a far better person now for having experienced it. Um, so I think that there's, uh, you know, while we, and I'll, you know, be the first guy to say, we probably ought to. You know, look at wrapping this shit up, but uh, you know, I did. 
uh, achieve you know quite a bit and probably learn a lot from it. Um, I think that's that's one you know aspect of it. And see, the other is that, uh, or like I kind of said, you know, we should kind of vote with your vote with your feet. Um, you know, we need to. You know, just like we don't need to fetishize the, you know, the warrior, we don't need to, you know, fetishize the war. I don't believe that, uh, you know, that we need to live in a uh, eternal state of war. I think some of these uh, things should be wrapped up and going to allow the country to move on to you know, solving other problems or dealing with other issues. That's that's some good stuff right there. Uh, you know. <laughs> I, I've always gotten along with with soldiers, with veterans. Um, I feel like they have a good measure of um, self-respect and and a hard work ethic. And something else I appreciate is the gallows humor. And um, I know I know a few people, including some members of my family, who wouldn't have amounted to much without having spent the time that they did in the military and learning how to work hard and be disciplined and to follow orders and things. And I think that's, that's an important piece. And, and, uh, you know, I, uh, as far as the second point, I guess I'll let people sort of think about that and, and consider how they want to respond or how they feel about that and, and leave that open to them. So, so look, uh, number one, thank you for your service. Uh, and, and thank you for coming on to take the time to share some of the things you learned from, from having that experience. And, um, I really appreciate it, and uh, it's been it's been great to get a chance to talk to you and to get to know my buddy Garrett's dad a little bit too. Well, thanks for having me. I've had a had a blast, and uh, you know, I'd be happy to come back on any time. Well, I am considering having a uh, roundtable discussion with with uh, several of the guests I've been talking to uh, during this war series, and if you're open to that, uh, perhaps I'll extend an invitation to take part in it. Certainly. Very good. Well, listen, uh, if you're good, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks. Very good. Well, in that case, this has been the Logo Centrifugal Podcast. I've been Chance Lunsford. He's been John Daly. And this has all been Allegedly.